Barack Obama once said, The future belongs to young people with an education and the imagination to create. On episode 19 of Humans Now and Then, I speak to college professor and technologist Scott Christensen about potential disruptions in higher education, the hopes he has for Generation Z, and how people can step up to shape the future that they envision. The future is exactly what we make of it. And unfortunately, I know we're all busy and we all don't have time to really think of a lot of these issues, but the future is going to happen one way or another. And the world is going to be changed by the people who bother to show up. Scott Christensen is an assistant teaching professor at the University of Missouri and a technologist with decades of experience in project management, information security, and video conferencing technology. Scott has co-authored books and scientific articles, run for office, taught thousands of students, won awards, and presented at dozens of conferences. He enjoys new projects and is passionate about teaching and learning. So, ready to explore potential disruptions in higher education and discuss how speaking to a student may give you hope for the future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Scott Christensen, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me on this uh, wonderful Saturday morning. We're both sitting in our basements and getting to talk about the future. What could be uh, better? I enjoy it. That's right. Well, what's a better place to record than the basement? So so for the listeners that don't know, my studio is a former toy closet in my basement that I've transformed into a recording studio. So here I am in my basement and Scott is also in his basement. So yeah, so let's talk a little bit about you. Sure. So I am currently serving as an assistant teaching professor in the management department here at a uh, University of Missouri. And it's a great job. It's where I teach. I don't do research. So there's a tenure track and those folks do research and I do teaching. And so I get to concentrate on uh, teaching my students, uh, helping them learn how to think about the world, learn how how to think about the changes and what's going to happen in the future. And uh, I have a little bit different background a little uh, than some of my more academic colleagues. So I ran a business for many years, often working at the forefront of new and emerging technologies. And so that's where I have a lot of interest in. And I'm trying to help my students understand how some of these technologies may affect their lives in the future. Of course, this being said, we're in April of 2020. So we're in the middle of the COVID crisis, I guess we'll call it. We'll see what historians will call it once we're through all this. But we're seeing uh, the future coming forward uh, in a lot of ways and some radical transformations that may have taken a little while uh, now uh, happening. And uh, whether this is going to be good or bad as far as these changes is yet to be uh, discovered. Absolutely. And maybe some combination of both. Yes. So obviously, the current pandemic has significantly impacted higher education institutions like your own. So how has it been transitioning to a virtual learning environment? Um, And also, how do you think that's impacted higher education in general? Well, it's been very interesting because we had uh, essentially two days off of our regular work week to get everything online. So across uh, four campuses, that was about 70,000 students. Uh, that all of a sudden transitioned online. And to say that this is somehow a well-thought-out virtual learning environment would be a a huge exaggeration. 
uh, it's really more of a Hail Mary attempt to, fill, uh, to finish out the semester. And there have been some great bright spots. So for example, I have a project management class where we were going to be doing an exercise with Legos where we were going to be using uh, those Legos to uh, learn about uh, some techniques called Scrum and Kanban. And uh, we weren't able to do that, but we did it in Minecraft. And we had already known each other already, so it was, it was pretty easy to transition to have some really good dialogue, to have some really good interaction online. Other ones have to kind of go to this, uh, you know, a recorded lecture when you have 600 students. But I think what's really going to be interesting is how do we look at what are future semesters going to be like? Of course, right now we're uncertain about the fall. You know, are we going to be able to have these large lectures? But I also think that some of the dialogue that's going on is really about how do we look at how could you do something virtually that would be of a much higher quality than what we're experiencing right now? And how could we bring in things like the social interaction? That's really where the students get a lot of their learning from. And we're seeing that right now where all that's been kind of stripped away. We don't have the campus. We don't have the interaction. We don't have the interaction with students. I frankly didn't realize how much I was interacting with students throughout the day because, uh, you know, I gave them all my cell phone and said, you know, just call me with any, you know, short questions. Well, that turned into like 30 meetings a day that I didn't realize were short little, you know, half a minute conversations that I had with students or interactions or little encouragements here and there. And so how do we uh, kind of bring that back into uh, not only a virtual learning environment, but how can we actually maybe make our in-seat classes better with some of these technologies. And one of the things that I'm really looking at is how could we have a situation where uh, you could have a class that would be in-seat and you would have different options for how to participate that week. Maybe you were going to be in, in the classroom that week. Uh, maybe that week you have to go back and uh, help take care of your parents. So you're going to do a Zoom in because you can still do it asynchronously. Or maybe that week you have to be traveling, so you do it asynchronously. But you still have different uh, expectations for those. So I'm really encouraged to think about how we might reshape higher education. Uh, I'm also very encouraged by the fact that there has been some critical discussion on the value that we're getting for the price of higher education and how come education hasn't done a better job of getting more education out to more people. And not to go too far into the weeds, but uh, one of the reasons that we seem to be kind of stuck in this system of exclusivity, not opening up our courses to everybody, is because of the way that we're measured. Uh, we are ranked higher as an institution if we're seen as being more exclusive. And if you look at the Newsweek rankings, they all follow like our cognitive bias, our confirmation bias, right? So if, if Newsweek, when they had started this, had said that uh, Samples University in Utah is the best university in the world because they offer high-quality education to a lot of people and they have a really good open system, they work this out. Well, that doesn't fit with what our, is in our mind, because when I say what are the best institutions, we think, oh, Harvard, Princeton, MIT. So those uh, have some certain characteristics, not to say they aren't great schools, but um, they have some certain characteristics, such as they are trying to be exclusive, right? So they have a, a, a high rejection rate. They want to have that high rejection rate. They don't want to open up their classes to the masses. 
and we need more good quality higher education. And our current system is in some types locked into the way that we measure what is quality. Uh, and I think that really has to change as well. So based on your experience, what would you recommend for a better measurement system on the quality and value of the education that people receive? You know, that's a, a really good question. And I think, you know, one of the things we do have to look for is uh, getting rid of this idea of exclusivity. You know, uh, why don't we have open universities? So why don't uh, we just let anybody who wants to pay for the course show up in my course? Um, why do we have to go through these administrative uh, rigmaroles? And I think that uh, when we start to look at adult education in particular, we're going to see more of a demand for um, certificate programs. So I want to do a one-year certificate in analytics because it sure seems like my field. Uh, I've been in marketing and it sure seems like this is where things are going. I'm in art, but I really need to learn something about business because I want to open an art gallery and I don't really understand much about business. So uh, I don't need to go back to university for a four-year degree. Can I do some sort of certificate that actually has some some meaning, some credentialing behind that? So um, if I had my dream as a teacher, I would uh, maybe start to look at some variations on this you know, 16-week semester that we have, the fall semester, the winter semester. There's a private institution in Canada called Quest University. And what's very interesting to me is they do about three and a half week classes. So, Rebecca, you would be in a class with me on project management. I would have you eight hours a day for three and a half weeks. And if we needed to fly to Chicago to look at some project or we need to fly down to uh, Florida and see how NASA is handling their projects or to SpaceX or wherever it was, we could go do that because I know that you're not involved in any other classes. So as far as uh, reimagining what the education experience might be like for undergraduates, I think we need to look at some of these other models because then you still have that social interaction, you have the campus atmosphere, you have that interaction with the professors, but you have a way that really allows for a lot more customization, I guess. Yeah, and one of the things that you brought up again, um, which I think is really interesting to think about, is the aspect of social interaction. You work with a lot of college students, and of course, they're not always there just for uh, the education. Um, they're there for social opportunities, too, uh, whether that be parties or football games, you know, and so forth. So now, of course, we're in this environment where none of that's happening. And so we look into the fall, and it may not happen in the fall either. So does this potentially start to redefine the college experience? Well, it's interesting. Um what we're seeing from students is they want the college experience. They do not want to be online in their parents' basement <laughs> listening to Scott in his basement. I think there's some good things about that because it's stripped back some of these layers of football and beer and, and uh, parties and everything and uh, allows us to look a little more objectively at this narrow aspect of the content of our courses which and the delivery of our courses. And I think that's going to be a good thing as far as increasing the quality of our education. But certainly, that's a big part of the college experience. And it's even a big part of my uh, large lecture classes when we're together. We'll do a lot of uh, silly little exercises where we pair up and we share something and we you know, have some sort of social interaction because there's these different pathways in your brain that get activated. So I'm going to remember this conversation that I had with you because we're interacting, we're smiling at each other. Uh, we can 
get these visual cues. I have a connection to you now. I'm going to remember what I talked about this Saturday morning in my basement. If I had written a report on this, I'm not sure I would remember much a year from now. So there's different ways uh, that social interaction with your professors, with your colleagues, uh, has a lot to do with how we learn. And there have been a lot of exercises throughout the past 30 years that I've been involved in education where we see some new technological miracle that's going to solve education, right? And solve, as usually means, make it low cost, okay? So we're going to have MOOCs, these massive online courses where 30,000 people can watch the best MIT professor. And uh, this will be great because we no longer have to have a professor at the University of Missouri. We can just have this great professor, and there'll be one professor of physics in the world, and uh, this technology will solve it. Well, it doesn't. It turns out they have very low pass rates. It's great for some people that really need that kind of just-in-time learning. And I love the YouTube videos as well. I'm going through one right now that's, I think, from Stanford, and it's uh, about deep learning. But I have a very narrow interest in that right now. And so there are certainly roles for a technological delivery of classes. But um, too often, we just look at this as like, this is a technical problem. And education is not a technical problem. It's a human interaction problem, if you will, if it's a problem at all. Um, but we've seen just wave and wave after this idea. So back in the early days of the 80s and 90s, it was, we call them moods, text-based interaction in a class. And people thought, oh, well, this will scale. It'll be wonderful. We can teach 30,000 people at once. And of course, it doesn't work because you don't have that one-on-one -on -one interaction. So. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I think there are some things that we should not be teaching in our classrooms simply because they're more amenable to that kind of just in time. So when you're in your job and you need to learn uh, or you need to remember something about statistics, that's a great time to go to Khan Academy and get that, right? So why aren't we teaching students the approach of let's work on a project and then let's see how we pull in the information we need when we need it, especially technological information, which, as you know, uh, kind of goes out of your brain a little more uh, quickly than the skills of how to think about things, how to pull things in when you need them. And so I think in some ways we need to examine some of the subjects. And uh, we talk about critical thinking a lot, but then we still have a lot of this sage on the stage type of teaching, which I guess has gone to boomer on talking to Zoomers or something like that. <laughs> I don't know what the analogy is now, uh, but uh, it doesn't translate well, right? Yeah, and that's an interesting point. That made me think of a couple topics, one being um, accessibility to education. Uh, so I think there's an opportunity for technology to be leveraged in a way that allows more broad access to education. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. Then I've got another one for you to talk about as well. But what's your thought around the need for broader access to higher education? Well, I think we need more education. I know there's some people that uh, this gets complicated, especially when we talk about technology, because some uh, technologists will advocate that, oh, you should drop out of school and you should uh, you know, start a business. Here's the reality. You're not Bill Gates. You're not Steve Jobs. Okay. It's not, uh, yeah, I know your, you know, stepbrother's cousin, uh, once dropped out of school and it worked out for him, but you're probably not that guy either. Okay. So, um, you have to have some sort of post-secondary certificate 
degree of some sort. If you just look at the jobs that were decimated in the last recession and really never came back, those are those people that did not have uh, anything more than a, a high school degree. So you have to have something. That's just the reality. Now, should you spend huge amounts on that? Um, I'm not sure that you should. I wouldn't go into great debt, especially at an undergraduate level. I think that state schools are great. I wouldn't spend beyond your means when it comes to education. But uh, you need some sort of post-secondary education, and we need to have more people with that uh, if we want to be more competitive, if we want to have people that uh, are going to uh, do well in the job market and do well in their future. Some of that is technical skills, uh, and a lot of that is also the kind of analytical or strategic thinking. So yeah, how do we make education more available? How do we make it available to a wider group of people? I think there are measures that we need to look at as far as how we fund education, how we uh, reimburse education. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing right now that higher education is not very resilient, right? So we've had, uh, I know in my state, we've basically had a systematic deinvestment of the state from our uh, higher education institutions. So we get more of our funding from tuition now than we do from the state. And so that's really shifted the dynamics of, you know, how we uh, view students, how we view funding. And I don't think all the institutions we currently have are going to make it through this. And I think that's going to be uh, very tragic because we do need more uh, good education. We need more cooperation between educational institutions. So there needs to be less barriers for working together. There needs to be more incentives. And of course, this all comes down to, uh, in management, we would say, uh, what gets measured gets managed. Okay, a famous quote by a guy named Peter Drucker. And so if you're measuring, um, oh, we're exclusive, we only allow people with a 3.2 uh, into our program, um, we've rejected so many people, and this is somehow good. Well, if that gives us a higher ranking and that gives us more funding, guess what we're going to do? We're going to continue on that path. So I really think we need to stop and reevaluate how we as a society measure higher education. Yeah, and I think I could do a whole show just on the topic of measurement, uh, whether it be business or education or whatnot. Uh, but I do want to shift to one other topic that you brought up a little bit before, and that's related to teaching critical thinking skills. Uh, the reality is uh, you go out in the world, into the workplace, or even just wanting to go out and solve problems, right? Uh, skills like having the ability to make connections between disparate concepts is very valuable, uh, very valuable for organizations, very valuable for innovation. And then when we think about the future, it's very valuable to think about how we can integrate different technologies or even just the relationship between technology and people's experience out in the world. So how could um, higher education institutions approach the aspect of teaching people how to better leverage their critical thinking skills? Well, if I can just speak from my own perspective here, and I'm sure there's, there's obviously diverse opinions out there about how we should approach education. I think it has to be project-based. There have been uh, several other countries that have taken this approach. So thinking about how we teach critical thinking skills. For me, critical thinking skills come from experience. And so having a project that you're actually working on that's a real-world project, so maybe that is an undergraduate level that's a service learning project where you're 
doing some work for a nonprofit or you're doing some work for a company and you're actually getting that hands-on experience and your faculty member is not there so much to teach you the things from the textbook, but it's really there as your mentor to help you evaluate these different sources of information, different tools that you might use, different online tools you might use to solve a problem or to manage your project. And so that's what I would really like to see us move more toward uh, at the undergraduate level. Those uh, types of small projects can help us out. At the MBA level, I wonder if we might even reimagine that as something where we have a year together in a classroom, and then you go out to your job, and it's kind of like the old uh, machinists, where you would be an apprentice and then a journeyman and then a master, right? So you would maybe be, uh, after that first year, able to enter the job market, but you'd still have access to the faculty to help mentor you along the way. So you could still call up Scott and say, hey, you know, I'm really having this problem. Uh, I thought this was the way to go, but I tried it and it didn't work. You know, what? why did that not work? Can you help me figure out a better approach? And so being able to mentor them post-campus experience, I think would be, uh, you know, just a great way to go. We, you know, we talk about lifelong learning uh, all the time, uh, but we still, you know, give them a diploma and say, see you later. And uh, we're not involved in their lifelong learning anymore. And so I would really like to see the institutions of higher education change to be more about the, the projects that students are working on and more about being engaged with them over the long term. You know, we've got some huge challenges in the world. I mean, we, we're currently dealing with this pandemic, but uh, we start to look at the future of energy, how we're going to use and have sustainable energy, start to look at uh, food, we start to look at biodiversity, climate change. All these are integrated systems thinking level problems, which are very complex, and they do not have black and white responses. And so it's very complex. How do we help students navigate that? Uh, and I certainly don't think we're doing the greatest job of that when we uh, teach from a textbook or we give them uh, problems that you know don't relate to their experience. I was running my business for years. I got really into finance because that determined whether I made any money that year, okay? That determined whether we had Christmas or not. <laughs> so um, it turns out, though, I'm just not, you know, generally interested in this as a, you know, make-believe project. And so we'll ask, uh, you know, students to do a net pr present value decision on um, a lathe. You know, well, what the hell is a lathe and why do I care? You know, well, let's look at this more about the value of your car that you're going to buy now, where that's going to be in the future, how are you going to be able to use that as collateral. Now, let's compare that to scraping up and buying a really crappy house. Wouldn't that be a better way to go uh, long term? So now, can we relate that to their personal finances? Can we relate that to something they're doing? And there's no better way than when they get out and actually have a job to do in their own professional experience. So I'd really like to stay mentors to students beyond their graduation or matriculation from our campuses. So that's my dream. I do not speak for any sort of institution with which I'm affiliated, but that is uh, you know, my dream of where we could head.
Well, I mean, what's interesting about that, you're talking about building a longer term relationship with students beyond just the educational environment. So this isn't just about them absorbing information that they may be able to use out in the world. What you're talking about is really kind of giving them a transition plan to prepare them for the types of relationships, mentorships, guidance that they're going to need throughout their career and really throughout their life. I would imagine anchored very deeply in a level of trust in the information that you provide to them to help them carry that forward. So I feel like that's tremendously valuable to anybody um, kind of venturing out in the world to feel like they're not doing it alone, not also becoming overly confident in what they believe they know, because as you know, any of us who have gone through higher education and then go out into the workplace or go out into the world, there's always a series of wake-up calls that we all experience and having that type of transition, I feel, would make folks more successful. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And having that type of discussion, think about the discussion that you've had with colleagues, people in your same industry, and you learn from each other, you learn from each other's mistakes. And um, that's something that we could bring to the educational experience for our students, and like I said, beyond the campus. And I've had uh, situations, I had one that uh, actually this semester and I've had in previous semesters where undergraduates are doing that type of consulting work for an outside client. And they find it extremely frustrating because it's not clear. There's no clear answers, right? And I say, you know, this is, the, this is the way the world works. But I just had a meeting yesterday with one of those students and they said it was one of the most rewarding experiences they've had because they've had to puzzle through and fail and then find the right uh, path forward. So a lot of that uh, for me, if we can get a project like that going, is to just get out of the way, you know, and let them see that one of the courses, we actually uh, did that kind of all semester long, and it was really nice because they were finding out that they had difficulty working with the clients. So I had a friend of mine that's a mediator come in and talk about how do you have you know difficult conversations with somebody? How do you deal with people that are uh, difficult? What are some of the things that you can do to get a meeting back on track? So give them some little tools as you go along. So um, I'm hoping that what we see with higher education is kind of a reevaluation of not only, you know, kind of what we're doing, how we're doing it. But I do think we need to get back onto the campus. But hopefully when uh, we return to the campus, we'll have some better tools, some better ways to think about education. Yeah, there's so many learnings that we could take out of this point in time. And I'm, I'm wondering, too, when you think about the future of higher education in general, what are some of the things that make you very optimistic about higher education in the future? Well, I think it is an area that will be disrupted. And I think there'll be uh, some interesting ways that we see uh, more diverse systems put in place. So the system that we have here in North America is kind of viewed as the epitome of higher education and is based on a German model of uh, the research university. And I think that uh, we're going to start to see more models emerge. I think some of these other universities have started up, like Quest I mentioned in Canada, as they have more success, more eyes will be tune toward them, right? So as they have more alumni that are successful, that's going to help them. So I'm very optimistic. And frankly, the students make me optimistic. Uh, I know there's, uh, you know, we could probably find 10 articles published today about how Generation Z is too coddled, uh, too lazy, blah, 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 what, what every generation has said about the younger generation, right? But when I interact with these students, they are very engaged. They want to know what's happening in the world. They want to know how they can make things better. They uh, have uh, more of a sense of a moral uh, obligation to the future. 
And I think they think critically about what previous generations have done. And in many ways, uh, if you look at the debts that we've piled up, and if you consider that money is equivalent to time or to work, basically the debts that my generation and previous generations have piled up, both in financial debt as well as in ecological and other types of debt, you know, we have basically stolen from future generations to pad our lifestyle. And so they're looking at this deficit and trying to understand how this was created, how it could be turned into something sustainable. And I think, you know, we just got to get engaged with them and we got to be willing to listen to what they have to say. And so I get very encouraged. It's kind of funny because of the times between classes, I sometimes get more cynical, I guess. Oh, I don't want to, oh, our semester's starting. Oh my goodness, I got all this work to do. And of course, the first time I'm in a, interacting with students, whether it be online or whether it be uh, in the classroom, you know, I'm excited and energized again. And I think that comes from the students. I really love that you brought that up because I've been a little frustrated with the generational conflict that has happened over the last few months, especially on social media. And I think really we need to learn how to appreciate one another better and think about this as a dimension of difference that does matter for education, that does matter for future disruption, and for setting up that generation to solve the big problems that we're going to face in the future. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm just really encouraged by my students. And I think they recognize that uh, I'm not like them, but I maybe have something to contribute that I can help. Uh, along the way. And uh, I try to recognize that they're not like me uh, and they have something to contribute along the way as well. And so we have to be working together uh, on these great challenges. And uh, so, like I said, I'm very, very encouraged. If you have this attitude, I would say you need to talk with more students. You either are not talking with them or you're just interacting with them in a very limited way. But if you sit down and and really talk with these students, I think you'll be very encouraged about the future. Yeah, that's inspiring to think about. I have to say, I have a college student. He's at Indiana University studying geology. And when he discusses geology, and a lot of it I personally don't understand. I don't obviously have that geological background, but he speaks about it with so much passion and ties it back to areas of the environment and thinking about the future and what this means for climate change. And that does inspire me. I think about the difference that he and other students can make with their unique perspective in the world, given the the point in time where they've grown up. So I agree with you on that point. And I hope more people do connect with students and understand that generation a little bit better and understand what they have to offer because they are our future. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So let me ask you the flip side of the other question. So what makes you concerned about the future in relation to higher education or any other topic? (laughs) <laughs> okay, there's a lot, there's a lot, lot there. Um, so if I talk about higher education, it would really be what we're, how we base our metrics. And I think we really need to stop and reevaluate that because we are uh, evaluating schools based on criteria such as exclusivity, and uh, we're not really doing a good job of thinking about higher education is how it changes from a research-oriented system to one that is more about dynamic problem solving. Uh, You don't generally get academic papers written by the times that you fail, but you sometimes learn a lot more. So I think there's a lot of ways that uh, we're going to see new institutions start up. Uh, I think we're going to see some uh, different models there. and But I think that's the main problem, is that we have to really start to evaluate how Um, we measure ourselves. 
I know that's controversial with a lot of folks, but the current system, we would call that regulatory capture in uh, when we're looking at government systems, where we have a regulatory body that encourages the current state of behavior. And certainly our current metrics encourage this current state of behavior for higher education. As far as you know, the uh, world in general, I've been really disappointed about our lack of ability to have some imagination in the U.S. It seems like we've really lost our ability to lead, to think about a future. Uh, we devolve into political divisiveness. We don't even seem to agree on the problems anymore. And, you know, in the 60s, we had this uh, idea that poverty was a problem. And so we certainly had different approaches. We had Nixon propose kind of a reverse income tax. So uh, essentially a UBI at the time, uh, universal basic income. And so that was a Republican, very economically efficient approach. Of course, LBJ had his uh, war on poverty, a big government program. But we both agreed that poverty in the U.S., there shouldn't be people living in abject poverty and now we don't seem to even agree as to whether uh, this is a problem or not. And so that's been very discouraging, disheartening for me, is we can uh, do all sorts of things, uh, or we have done all sorts of things in the past. It certainly seems like we should be taking a lead in the world in uh, solving some of these great challenges. But I think, uh, you know, it may be a big uh, radical shift as far as the role of the U.S. in uh, uh, addressing the world's problems. Uh, so we'll see how this turns out, but uh, this may be an inflection point. Maybe I'm wrong and we will kind of wake up and get going again. But I think that uh, instead of arguing as to whether uh, something can be solved or not, we just need to get on with it, you know, and get it done and start to uh, dialogue with each other a little bit more and start to listen to each other. But uh, yeah, there's reasons to be optimistic and pessimistic at any time. And um, things are never as good or as bad as you think they're going to be, right? So yeah, it's always some combination of both, isn't it? Yes. But kind of going back to your point that you made earlier about, let's say, Gen Z. So students that you're working with today um, that give you optimism. I do hope that they help, you know, kind of break that stalemate we've been in in relation to the agreement on the types of problems that we're facing in the world, whether that be climate change, um, like you said, different different ways to think about solving big problems like poverty, access to healthcare, you name it. So hopefully uh, we start listening to one another a little bit better, to your point, and start to leverage the different perspectives and skills and knowledge that we have, and of course, work together to help shape a better future. Yep. The future is what we make of it. And it's not preordained. And uh, I think especially in our world that is so influenced by technology, we just think that we're on some sort of path. I think you described it as being in a boat without oars, but the future is exactly what we make of it. And unfortunately, I know we're all busy and we all don't have time to really think of a lot of these issues, but the future is going to happen one way or another. And the world is going to be changed by the people who bother to show up. Okay, You wonder why your city has a certain regulation or your state does. Well, guess what? It's the people that bothered to show up at the city council meetings that said they wanted to have you know, a ban on this or not have a ban on this, or they wanted to have this intersection closed down or whatever it is. If you wonder why that is, it's because those people showed up and we got to just show up. And it's, you know, it's a cost to our lives. Uh, we've got to show up and vote. You know, that's a big part of it. You got to show up and, you know, find out about uh, what these politicians uh, really are about. 
Um, I'm not saying that politics is, I, I don't want to use that word in a derogatory sense, because I think there's a lot of good people in politics, but we need to get out there, meet them, support people, even if you don't agree 100%, there's never going to be a perfect candidate, but get out there, make a few phone calls, knock on some doors, uh, get involved, and you're going to educate yourself a lot about how the system works. So if we're going to have some new system, a lot of people say like, oh, I'm not going to get involved because I think the system is corrupt. Well, guess what? <laughs> if, you, if you don't get involved, it's going to stay the same way. So um, if you get involved, maybe there's a hope of changing it. So you got to show up. You got to try to bend the future to what you want to see. And so maybe we can't bend it all the way, but maybe we can push it a little bit in a certain direction in our communities. Yeah, that's a great call to action for anybody listening. Get out there and and help shape the future. So Scott Christensen, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been great. Any any Saturday morning that uh, you want to spend in uh, your basement and my basement, I'm happy to talk. You got it, Scott. Thank you. Scott took us through a journey of exploration about what the future of higher education could bring, centered on broader access as well as the importance of shaping the future. He also discusses the inspiration and hope that his students bring him, and a belief that Generation Z holds the tools and the passion to make a difference. Given the problems we face today, and those we are likely to face in the future, maybe we should each speak to a student to share perspectives, and ultimately work together to solve the biggest problems that we face as humans. As Scott noted, the future will be shaped by those who show up. So, ask yourself, Who has shown up in the past? Who is showing up now? And will you make the choice to show up to shape the future that you envision? I sure hope so. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Scott Christensen and his work, check out his website at christiansonjs.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-O-N-J-S dot com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.